0: I am going to spend the next few minutes just giving a bit of an overview in terms of where prostate cancer is by the numbers and give a, some of the basics, some of the nuts and bolts in terms of considerations that you need to think about before even getting into the questions of treatment decision making. So you know, starting with the basics, you know, what is prostate cancer? You know, cancer um, is a term we use for an abnormal growth. cells anywhere in the body and typically a lot of our focus is on cells with the potential to spread to metastasize to other parts of the body this is actually becoming a pretty important question in prostate cancer because there are those of us that are starting to ask the question whether we should even be using the word cancer for some of the lower grade prostate cancers Um, prostate cancer of course is is a cancer that starts in the prostate uh, which is the organ sitting between the bladder and the urethra in front of the rectum. This is a side view in the diagram here. It's a reproductive organ whose purpose is to make some of the fluid that surrounds sperm and to help push seminal fluid forward at the moment of ejaculation. So it is reproductive organ. Um, prostate cancer cells that spread to other parts of the body, most typically the bones, are still prostate cancer cells. And this is an important concept that sometimes does cause confusion. Uh, it is not bone cancer, it's still prostate cancer and still typically responds to treatment. You're going to hear more about some of the risk factors for prostate cancer this afternoon, but as with any cancer, prostate cancer reflects a combination of genetics, genes that you're born with, that you inherited from your parents, and a host of environmental factors that we are still sorting out. Um, And there are many that weigh in here, dietary factors, smoking, Chronic stresses, exercise. Um, Some of these environmental factors are controllable, many are not. And we know that there's a substantial proportion of cancers that we ultimately just say are bad luck. They're stochastic, they come from radon in the soil, cosmic rays, things that we really have no control over. And prostate cancer is extremely common. Um, It is by far the most common cancer that men get in the US, over a quarter million diagnoses a year. And it's the second most common cause of cancer death among men in this country and has been for many years. Now, over the years and the decades, uh, prostate cancer is the brown line here, the second one from the top. Uh, Prostate cancer mortality rates, death rates, have fallen very substantially since we started screening with PSA, with prostate-specific antigen, in the early 1990s. The mortality rate has fallen nearly 50% um, over the 20 years after PSA hit clinical practice. It's the steepest decline we've seen for any cancer with the exception of lung cancer. And we know the lung cancer decline is largely attributable to smoking cessation efforts and less cigarettes around the country. Uh, What drives the prostate cancer drop is a little bit more controversial, but a lot of it is clearly and directly attributable uh, to use of the PSA test in primary care and earlier identification of high-risk cancers. It is important to point out, though, just to emphasize the points that Dr. Washington was making in his talk, that the racial disparity has really not gotten much better, if any. Over the same time period since the 1990s, we've seen a similar drop in mortality for white and black men, but the delta, the space between these two, has not gotten any narrower. And this is on the right here is a look at the rate ratio, in other words, the multiple of mortality faced by black men compared to white men, and it has hovered consistently over 2x, you know, two and a half fold mortality uh, faced facing African American men. And the greatest disparity is actually in younger men. So. Uh, Men in their 40s and 50s, not many men die of prostate cancer this young, uh, but those that do, uh, there's three- and fourfold excess mortality for black men. Now, the reason prostate cancer has been such a controversial screening question all these years really relates to the exceptional variation in prognosis, in risk, reflected in this collection of lesions that we all brand with this prostate cancer label. And this is a terrific cartoon from a paper written a number of years ago now by Laura Esserman, who's a breast surgeon at UCSF, and Ian Thompson, a urologist uh, at UT Southwestern, thinking about screening for any cancer. And the idea is if we screen at periodic intervals, um, this can be PSA testing for prostate cancer, colonoscopies for colon, mammography for breast cancer, it doesn't really matter. The idea is if you get to the far right here, you've died of something else. In the U.S., that's almost always cardiac disease. It's the most common cause of death for men with prostate cancer, uh, just like it is for men without prostate cancer. If you get to the top of the, of the graph, you've actually died of the cancer. And we know that even with PSA testing, there are many cancers we never find. Um, these are the so-called autopsy tumors. We don't diagnose them, and this is a good thing. They cause absolutely no symptoms or threat to life. Then there are cancers that we can find. We can supposedly cure them while they are in the prostate. but had we never found them, the man would have died of something else, never knowing he had the prostate cancer. This is called overdiagnosis. These are tumors that we do not need to find, uh, and we can only do harm by treating them. Then there are the rabbits. The ones that we can find when we're in the prost- when they are in the prostate, we can cure these. And if we do not cure these, these would spread to cause metastasis, progression, and ultimately mortality. And we believe that it is the the chase and treatment of the rabbits that has driven a lot of that drop in mortality. And then there are the ones that fortunately, in the case of prostate cancer, are quite uncommon, so-called interval tumors, ones where the men men who have a PSA of 0.7 one year, then 0.8, and then 2.1. And by the time we diagnose the prostate cancer, it's too late. It's just exploded in a six-month or one-year period. This is very uncommon for prostate cancer. Uh, other cancers do this. This is why we cannot screen for pancreatic cancer, for example, but the, the so-called birds are, are very uncommon. Um, and the snails, we don't really care about. The whole question is the rabbits versus the turtles and how many turtles we've swooshed in the course of chasing the rabbits. And just to emphasize this point about the snails, about the autopsy tumors, this is a look at the prevalence of prostate cancer when we do autopsies for men who who die of other causes and look hard enough, we find prostate cancer very commonly. And I would start over here on the left. These are men in their 30s who die in car crashes or or, uh, accidents, et cetera. We can find prostate cancer cells already for men in their 30s in over 15% of white men and over 30% of black men. By the time you get to your 70s, these numbers are 40 and 50%. Um, you know, this is almost a feature of normal aging. If you live long enough, almost every man will get a couple of cancer cells in the prostate. So labeling these cancer, giving the man a cancer diagnosis when we find a low-risk tumor may really not be appropriate in 2022. So which ones do need treatment? Um, as I said, most men diagnosed with prostate cancer, most of the ones we find are the, are the turtles rather than the rabbits. And most men diagnosed would never know they had it if we had not found it. The reason we screen, the reason we look, is to find the aggressive ones. And as I said before, most men with prostate cancer die of other causes. However, the aggressive ones can be lethal and we need to find them before this happens. And we have a very good sense in 2022 of how to risk stratify and how to target treatments according to risk. We know that men with low risk disease should be managed almost exclusively with active surveillance, meaning following the cancers carefully, Uh, with treatment brought to bear only if the cancer shows signs of getting worse. Uh, Those which are slightly higher risk may be amenable to focal therapy, treating the tumor and leaving the rest of the prostate alone. Uh, Those at kind of intermediate to high risk do well with whole gland treatment, surgery, or radiation therapy, or sometimes a combination. Those with high-risk disease often do best with multimodal treatment, meaning in some cases surgery followed by radiation or radiation with aggressive hormonal therapy. And then some cancers we find too late, we find that they are already metastatic, and these are men who will start with systemic therapy, hormonal therapy, in many cases augmented by chemotherapy or other novel treatments. And you're going to hear talks over the morning and afternoon really drilling down into each of these alternatives. And we have not done a great job across the country over the years in targeting the treatments appropriately to the men who are most likely to benefit from them. Uh, this is a look from a large registry called Capture, which tracked practices, about 45 urology practices around the country, which we ran out of UCSF for many years. And throughout the 1990s and 2000s, if you look at the left here, these are low-risk tumors, and up until the end of the of the uh, 2000s, we over we treated almost every low-risk prostate cancer we could find. Only 10% or fewer of men actually got active surveillance or watchful waiting. The beginning of the last decade, this number went up pretty rapidly to about 40%. In the meantime, we were under treating high-risk disease. Uh, The proportion of men who were getting only hormonal therapy for high-risk localized prostate cancer without an attempt at cure peaked at around 50% um, and has now fallen. So we are getting better. We're treating less low-risk disease and treating more high-risk disease, which is appropriate. Now 40% was still too low even though we showed rapid progress. Uh, more recent analyses from other data sets, this is from the Aqua registry, which tracks now 350 urology practices around the country. The rate of active surveillance for low-risk disease has risen much further. We're now up to 60%, still not where we need to be, which should be around 80 or 90, but it is progress. However, there is massive variation. <clears throat> this is a look at individual urology practices and individual urologists showing the proportion of men with low-risk disease who get active surveillance. And the bottom line here is that your likelihood of getting active surveillance, if you knock on a urologist's door with a, can- with a diagnosis of low-risk prostate cancer, ranges from 0% to 100%, depending on whose door you happen to knock on. Now, this is a massive problem. Uh, It is hardly unique to prostate cancer or to urology. This is called the small area variations problem, and we see it everywhere in medicine. We have the courage to pick up the rock and look and see what's under there. Uh, But the only way we can solve it and fix the problem is to start to shed light on it. So let's talk a little bit more about what we mean when we say low-risk versus high-risk disease. Uh, There's a number of factors that drive this distinction, the first of which is, again, the PSA test, the same blood test that we use to screen for prostate cancer Prostate-specific antigen, it's a protein that circulates in the blood. It's produced by the prostate. We can pick it up with a simple blood test. Um, historically, we used to call the normal PSA less than four. That has really fallen out of favor. The median PSA for the population is around 0.7 for men man in his late 40s. Um, this drifts up slowly, 0.8 for men in his early 50s. By the time you get to 60, the median is around 1.0. Um, And about 90% of all prostate cancer deaths happen in men who have a PSA above two at age 60. Now, once you've got the diagnosis, PSA is still valuable. um, And the higher the PSA, the higher risk the cancer. We like to see it under 10, even better if it's under six. But it's important to recognize that PSA is prostate-specific antigen. It is not prostate cancer-specific antigen. And anything that happens to the prostate as you get older will drive up the PSA. And the most common thing that happens to the prostate as you get older is it grows. You get BPH, or benign prostatic hyperplasia. This is what typically causes men to have obstructive voiding symptoms as as they get older, slow stream, having to get up at night to pee, this sort of thing. Uh, Extremely common, even more common than prostate cancer, and does not raise the risk of prostate cancer in any way, except to the extent that it causes the PSA to go up. So we now have this concept of PSA density, which is the prostate, the PSA divided by the volume of the prostate. We measure that by ultrasound or MRI. Um, acknowledging that the bigger the prostate, the more we can write off the PSA to the size of the prostate. And we like to see this density under around 0.15. Now, what about the Gleason score? This is one of the most important uh, drivers of prostate cancer risk. This is how the cells look under the microscope. The pathologists get biopsy tissue. They say, is there cancer or not? And if there is cancer, does it look aggressive? And they assign patterns. So Gleason pattern three is low-grade, pattern four is intermediate, and pattern five is high-grade. These are now lumped into Gleason grade groups, which are a little bit easier to to understand in many cases. If the cancer is all low grade, this is what we call a grade group one. Um, And grade group ones never ever metastasize if it is purely a grade group one. And these are the ones that we're starting to question whether we should even label cancer because they never spread. Grade group twos are mostly low grade, pattern three, with a little bit of pattern four, which is intermediate grade. Grade group threes have more intermediate grade than low grade, four plus three. If it's all intermediate grade, that's a grade group four. And when we see the highest grade pattern, (coughs) uh, then we call it grade group five. Now there are other details that matter here. We take a uh, 12 to 14 core biopsy, plus if there are lesions on MRI or ultrasound, we will sample those as well. The more cores we see involved, the more aggressive the tumor. Uh, But details really matter here. So, you know, a small amount of high-grade cancer is often a a bigger problem than many cores of low-grade cancer. And it's important to have the pathology read by by an expert, a subspecialist, uh, because the details, even of what is pattern four, really matter. There are some some subtypes of pattern four that you'll see on the pathology reports, terms like fused gland and poorly formed glands, that are much less concerning than other types which we refer to as expansive cribriform or large cribriform. And it's really, really essential to have pathology re-reviewed by genitourinary urinary pathologists, sub-specialists, as we have at UCSF and many other uh, medical centers. We look at stage. It's not necessarily the most important factor in localized prostate cancer. This is just, is the prostate cancer palpable? Can we feel it on a digital rectal exam? Or is there indication on MRI or ultrasound that the tumor has... Uh, pushed outside the capsule of the prostate. That's what we call a T3. Um, And then if the cancer has spread to other parts of the body, we call that N1 if it's in the nodes or M1 if it has gotten out into the bones or other organs. And then we draw these all together to, uh, to do what we call risk stratification. This integrates all these different risk factors to try to get a sense of whether the cancer will spread to other parts of the body or not. There are lots of different ways to do this. The NCCN risk groups are the most commonly used. This has become pretty cumbersome, quite honestly, and doesn't necessarily do the best job stratifying men in terms of likelihood that the cancer will eventually progress, but you'll see these terms uh, used in clinical notes quite frequently. At UCSF, 17 years ago now, we published the CAPRA score, which uses the same parameters to come up with a zero to 10 score, which actually works much better to stratify men across the spectrum of risk. You get up to four points for PSA, up to three for the Gleason score, one each for the stage, the number of cores involved, and age. And we this does a very good job predicting what will happen over the years. Um, this is what we call a Kaplan-Meyer plot. And the idea here is every time there's a step-off, a patient has an event. In this case, it's actually uh, dying of the prostate cancer. So men with low-risk disease, you know, out to 16 years plus really nobody dies of the cancer. Whereas those with high risk disease, um, it's nearly half by 10 years if you have multiple bad risk factors. Briefly, uh, what else do we need to think about? Additional imaging is important. Uh, we have become strong advocates for multiparametric MRI when it is done at a center of excellence like UCSF. Um, in terms of staging the cancer to look and see if it has spread, PSMA PET has really become our gold standard. As Eric mentioned, this is a a test which uh, Tom Hope here and colleagues at UCLA really drove forward to clinical practice in the United States, and it's now broadly available. This is rapidly replacing bone scan and CT as our means of looking for cancer in other parts of the body. But you really only need a PSMA PET if you have risk factors for cancer that has spread. What about genomic and genetic testing? Uh, these terms are, can be confusing. Genomic testing means looking at the gene expression in the cancer itself. We are often using these for men where we are kind of on the fence in terms of whether to go forward with treatment or not. The one we use most commonly here is called decipher cipher. It looks at 22 genes in the cancer and helps us get a bit of a sharper crystal ball picture in terms of what may happen over the next five to 10 years. Genetic testing means looking at the DNA you're born with Uh, to get a sense of whether there are genes that actually drove the cancer development in the first place. In some cases, these can change how we manage you, uh, but it's also very important information for family members. And the recommendations in terms of who should get genetic testing are getting broader every year. So we're doing more and more of this. Final point I want to make is that screening has been controversial over many years, but we are finally coming to a consensus in terms of how to do this properly. And we now have live at UCSF after an excellent conversation with our primary care leadership here, uh, a program that really emphasizes smarter screening and treatment. And this is baked into our primary care uh, electronic medical records system now, that we really should be offering screening to healthy men who have a good life expectancy, that subsequent testing really should be tailored based on what that baseline PSA is, especially when it's done at a young age, and tailored further based on risk factors like race, family history. Um, We manage almost all low-risk disease here with active surveillance. Uh, We use markers quite extensively, actually, to help make decisions about who should get a biopsy and who should get treated. Um, And finally, I would just say, stay positive on all this. It's really important to remember prostate cancer is slow moving in the vast majority of cases. Five-year survival is basically 100%, even for high-risk cancers. Um, And even metastatic cancers grow much more slowly in most cases than many other cancers. The treatments are improving all the time. You're going to hear about all the incredibly exciting and very rapidly moving innovations in management of high-risk and advanced prostate cancer. And we can manage many of the side effects as well. So in most cases, you have time to collect opinions and to make decisions that make the most sense for you and your families and friends.